Welcome back to the In the Dugout podcast. My name is Jason Ward, and I'm joined by Garrett Jacobsmeyer. Hello. So we've got a great episode for you guys this week. We have Jemai Webster, the Nesson sideline reporter, on. But before we get to that, um, let's jump right into some Red Sox news. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but we should still talk about it. Stephen Wright suspended 80 games for PEDs. Thoughts? And Jason just got his autograph in uh, Fort Myers, so that's lucky. Yeah, so um, he won't be postseason eligible. Um, we're going to be without him in the bullpen for 80 games, which is a big loss to the bullpen, but I mean... We're so bad already. I, yeah. It doesn't really faze me too much. I just wish that he told the team when he knew that he was going to be suspended because he knew in the offseason that he was going to get suspended for PADs, but he didn't tell the Red Sox. If he told the Red Sox, the Red Sox could have had time to go out and get another reliever, but they didn't know, so they just assumed they were going to have Stephen Wright, and they let all those relievers go. So now they've, they've kind of dug themselves into a hole now. I can't really figure out what his reasoning was. It's just unfortunate for the Red Sox, and it's not right by him. Well, it was a growth hormone, and it was for his knee or something, but, I mean, still can't do it. And then part I didn't like, every athlete does this, but they say, I don't know how it got in my body. You got to own up to it at least. You made a mistake, own up to it. Everyone will respect you uh, more, you know? Like, if you're a professional athlete, I don't understand how you don't know every single thing going into your body. Like, you can't just accidentally take PEDs. That's true. You, you monitor what you eat so much, you monitor what you do, how you work out, everything like that, and you can't figure out that you're taking illegal growth hormone. All right, bud. Um, so, like I said, big blow to the bullpen. Let's talk about this bullpen because it is not good. You're correct. <laughs> Spring training doesn't matter at all. I always say that. But the way that our pitchers have been pitching this spring training certainly is not reassuring. I was looking at the stats the other day, and not a single pitcher – on the, in the Red Sox bullpen, a normal pitcher had less than like three earned runs in their start so far. Matt Barnes was terrible. Tyler Thornburg has been so bad this spring training. Uh, Brandon Workman, his velocity is down. He's been bad. The only good one is Colton Brewer, but he doesn't have much major league experience, so we don't even know what to expect from him. The bullpen is just so bad. And the way that the MLB is changing, we can't rely on our star-studded starter group to carry us through games anymore. We need to have some solid relievers, and we just don't. Well, let's just have the starters go nine innings every single start. See, that's... That solves the problem. That's a plan, yeah. We'll see how that works <laughs> out for you. Bold, bold plan. But at this point, I seriously think that the Red Sox absolutely have to go out and sign Craig Kimbrell. Like, that's the reason why they acquired him in the first place is because they had that hole in the bullpen and we have that hole again now so why not sign him and fill the hole again there's not a single player in that bullpen that I trust in any kind of high leverage situation like do you want Matt Barnes or Heath Hembry on the mound in the ninth inning with the bases loaded against the Yankees or the Astros absolutely not and I think Craig Kimbrell the asking price is high obviously but the clubhouse likes him and obviously the fans like him but we got to take that price tag, and we got to win some baseball games. Yeah, just give him the money he wants at this point. Like, our main goal is winning. Giving him that extra 2 or $3 million that you want to pay him, it's worth it in the end. Like, we don't even need to sign him for the six years. We can offer him a two-year, three-year deal for a little above what we would give him on a long-term deal. That would appeal to him. That would appeal to us because then we can have him for a couple years, and we can have Dalton, <laughs> Dalton Furbush, Durbin Feltman, um, come up and he can be the closer. And obviously the Red Sox have to be smart 
smart about it. You can't have a huge price tag for six years or something and just kill your team for so long if he goes down the drain. Um, but he's proven, and he's been a little scary in spots, gives us heart attacks once in a while. Um, but he's a proven reliever, and we really could use him to win some baseball games. Yeah, my followers and the people I talk to, many of them say they don't want Kimbrell back because he's bad or he sucks. He doesn't. Just because he makes you nervous sometimes doesn't mean that he sucks. He still converts the save opportunities, and he's still better than the average closer in the MLB. You can't expect a guy to go out there and get three strikeouts every single day, every single game he's out there. Like He's going to give up some runs. He's going to give up some hits. No pitcher is going to strike out every single batter they face. No pitcher is going to have an immaculate inning every time they go out there. And the thing is, you have such high expectations for him because he's been so good. He's been proven, um, and you have these super high, perfect expectations, and no pitcher is going to live up to that. Um, so you gotta, you got to be realistic with him. So speaking of how bad the uh, bullpen is, this team, the Red Sox, are just garbage. They're so bad. Let's look at their spring training standings here. Um, Red Sox are in last place. They have a record of 6-13. and 13. They haven't won a game in their last nine games. They have a winning percentage of 316. This team is terrible. Speechless. Speechless. Absolutely atrocious. Um, Jason, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and you are perfect. So Red Sox played the Yankees today in a spring training game, and they got blown out 14-1. to They almost launched a comeback in the sixth inning, scoring one run, but it uh, was not enough to catch up to the Yankees 14. Honestly, Aaron Judge is really an unattractive-looking man. <laughs> And because spring training games don't matter, like Jason said, um, that's what I decided to focus on instead. Okay. That, that's your takeaway from this um, losing streak and uh, loss to the Yankees is Aaron Judge is unattractive. He is. He's an ugly man. Um, speaking of ugly, someone who is not ugly is <laughs> Raphael Devers. Yes, he is cute. <laughs> um Alex Cora said that Rafael Devers will um, be hitting third in the lineup for many games this regular season. They showed it off in a couple spring games so far. What do you think of Devers batting third? Oh, no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Do you have a take on this, Jason? Tell me your take. Um, I find it kind of odd. Uh, and when we have Andrew Benatendi leading off, great. Mookie Betts batting second, awesome. Wouldn't you want J.D. Martinez hitting third to drive those two guys in? Because those are two guys that get on base a lot. So have your best run producer drive them in. I mean, Devers is great, but he's not necessarily our clutchest hitter or our best hitter with runners on base. I mean, Bogarts is probably better with runners on base. So I like having J.D. third and then Bogarts fourth or even have Bogarts third and J.D. fourth. I just feel like Rafael Devers is more of a number five or six hitter then a number three hitter. See, I would agree with you, Jason. If I could stop thinking about how cute I think Devers is, um, <laughs> I would have more to say. But I would agree with you. I don't think he's the fastest guy in the world, obviously. Um, I don't think he's too slow. I think people think of him as uh, Pablo Sandoval Jr. He's not. He's a, uh, he's a great athlete, but I do think it's a little odd, just like Jason. Another thing on Rafael Devers, though, is he's having a phenomenal spring training so far. I'm just tearing the cover off the ball. Let's look at his stats here. I know spring training doesn't matter, but it's encouraging when a player's doing well. 
He's batting 438 this spring with a homer and four RBIs, a 1.094 OPS. Does that mean anything? I mean, if we're going to excuse that our pitchers are pitching like crap, <laughs> I, I don't know how much that means to us. But obviously, it's baseball. It's great to make contact with the ball. Um, it's encouraging to see anything out of these guys. I mean, I remember when Pablo Sandoval first joined the team. He had an, a, a phenomenal spring training, like similar to Rafael Devers, and then we all know what happened with him. Busted his belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... I don't really think that Rafael Devers having a great spring will really translate to anything in the regular season, but that doesn't mean that I don't think Rafael Devers will have a good regular season. I think he'll have a great regular season, but I just don't think that there's that correlation between spring training stats and what actually happens in the regular season, which I hope is true for our bullpen's sake. <laughs> yeah, we, we pray that's true. We're not looking too good in that category, and we lost 13 games. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about, Nathan Evaldi. Um, I saw this in a Michael Silverman article. Um, he was making an argument that Nathan Avaldi should be the game one starter for the regular season based on what he did in the postseason last year. I personally love that idea. Reward the guy for having a great postseason. Give him the game one start. I mean, Sales had plenty of game one starts. Um, I don't think it really means that much to Sale. He just wants to win. So have Nathan Avaldi pitch in that first game and see what he can do. I love the way Nathan Navaldi pitched. Obviously, the results speak themselves in the postseason, but just his attitude, the way he went in, was it game three or two? That game that three? went, I think it was three. You know, like to one one a.m. in the morning. Three. Um, the way he pitched in that game, and just to come back and and you know suffer a defeat like that after playing so well, um, it really just speaks to him as a character, and it speaks to him as a hard worker. And uh, those are the kind of guys that I love to see on a baseball team. Um, and I, I think it would be amazing to reward him with a game one start. Okay, we've, we've been saving this one. Let's talk about the MLB rule changes here. I have a lot to say about this one. Let's get started. Um, first, let me just read for you guys what the rule changes are. So the MLB will Im be implementing these rules um, in the next two years. A single trade deadline on July 31st, which eliminates the waiver trade deadline in August. They'll have a $1 million prize for home run derby winners, an all-star selection day, two-minute commercial break limit, max bound visits five instead of six, and then for 2020, a roster expansion from 25 men to 26, and um, a three-batter minimum for pitchers. Which one do you want to talk about first? Start right at the top. Okay, single trade deadline, July 31st. I personally love this. I hate when you think there's no more trading, then all of a sudden, uh, like the Justin Verlander trade a couple years ago. Those trades in August just aren't as fun as those trades that happen like last minute on July 31st before 4 o'clock or whatever the time is. So I, I, like, I like that decision. Um, it makes July much more interesting, makes the trade, trade deadline much more fun for fans. Um, and it also it could encourage teams to make more moves in the offseason because they don't have until August to see what their team's like. They have until July. So I think it's good for the game of baseball overall. I also think it's good, but I think it's more for a fan reason. I think it's confusing on the way trades happen after this, uh, I don't know, sort of fake trade deadline. I think for someone who follows, you know, I follow baseball more than the average person, but it's confusing. And when I have to go talk to my, my friend Jason, who understands it much more, um, that's not good for the casual fan. I don't think that's good for the sport. And I think uh, it'll be much better to be sitting on the beach on the trade deadline and then have everything happen like I was sitting on the Cape. Um, 
have everything happen and then th that's it. You know, that's the team that you're going to go to the World Series with, hopefully. Uh, I think it's much better for the game. I think it's much better for the fans. I agree, right? You think it's over and then all of a sudden, boom, Justin Verlander's on the Astros in sometime in August. Yeah, so the second one here, million-dollar prize for home run derby winners. Hopefully we encourage some big-name guys to come in. I mean, that's what baseball needs. They need... Um, they need to really stop the restrictions on their players getting their names out there. Obviously, everyone knows who they are, but we want to see personality. We want to see flair. Um, yeah. Like with the million-dollar prize, that's an incentive for players to actually want to do it. So hopefully we can see um, a Joey Gallo and Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, J.D. Martinez, all those guys competing in the Home Run Derby for that million-dollar prize. So I think that's a great move. Well, you know you have a guy like Harper last year who ended up winning it in his uh, – was it a red, white, and blue bandana he was wearing? <laughs> um, that's the kind of character we need. But baseball has much more than just Bryce Harper. Um, and we need to show that to the world. Right, like the best player in the game, Mike Trout, we don't really see much of his personality. They don't really do much of a job marketing that and showing it. But if you get incentives into the All-Star game and into the Home Run Derby for players to actually participate and show their personality then that's great for the fans, and that's great for the game. Third one here, um, an all-star selection day. So basically what it is, I don't, I don't really know exactly how it works, but basically there's a single day where um, all the votes are taken and all-stars are selected. Whatever, I'm not really sure. It's supposed <laughs> to be fun to watch, I guess, fun to follow. Yeah. Next one I really like, the two-minute commercial break limit. It doesn't really shorten, shorten it as much as you think it does, for um, local games, it's just five seconds shorter. For national games, it's 25 seconds. But I definitely like the direction it's going, shorting those commercial breaks, because in my opinion, that's why the games are so long, is because you have all those long commercial breaks between innings when you don't really need those. Because I think it was on starting nine or something like that, I heard a player talking about how they're ready to go, but then the umpire is telling them to wait because they're not back from commercial break yet. So shortening the commercial breaks is definitely a good move. I would absolutely agree with you, Jason, and um, I had a friend bring this up to me in class. We were talking about these rules, too, and he said um, there might be an issue with you know, the uh, TV companies making money and stuff like that when they're showing the game. Um, I don't think it'll matter too much, I guess, in the direction this is going. People don't want to see commercials, and I, I get mad. If you compare it to another sport, the NFL will have a kickoff, a commercial, a kickoff, another commercial, you know, and then the game, and that's obnoxious, and uh, I hope MLB obviously never goes that way. Um, it's better for the fans. It's better for people to watch when it's shorter, and it's the game we're focusing on. Next one, I don't think this is even worth talking about. Max Bound visits now five instead of six. It wasn't an issue at all last year. It never came up that they maxed out at six. I don't think five is going to be much of a difference, but whatever. Uh, next one, roster expansion. This one's in 2020. Roster expansion from 25 to 26. Um, I, I, I kind of like it. I mean, it... It helps out the players in terms of it gives them another player that can jump in and give them a day off. So it's good for keeping players healthy and fresh. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I like how, um, you know, it just for managers, you know, another tool in the tool shed. You can use whoever you need. And uh, finally, here's the big uh, controversial one. Three batter minimum for pitchers. Yeah, um, we, we were talking about this. So, Jason, you know, I've always had this question since the start. I was talking to you about it. Um, what happens when you know, there's one batter, you have two outs in an inning, the bases are loaded, yank that pitcher, stick another pitcher in there, he gets the final out of the inning. It's, I don't know, the eighth. He has to come back for the, uh, 
for the ninth, doesn't he, to face two more batters until he can come out of the game? Or Well, the way that it works is they have to face three batters before they can come out of the game, or there's an injury or the end of the inning. So if the inning ends, then it kind of like resets, and you can put another pitcher in, even if that pitcher only threw one inning, or I mean uh, one-third of an inning. But as long as the inning ends, you can take him out. But when you put him into a fresh inning with zero outs, and they give up, say, a walk, and then they give up a home run, and then a hit by pitch, like you can't take him out until after all the damage is done. And so, okay, so the main thing I hate about this is it takes away like the lefty specialists or the people from the bullpen who come in for one batter just to get him out. It takes away that strategy, and the strategy is what makes what makes baseball great is that having that strategy of who should I put in the situation to face this lefty or who should I put in the situation to face like Mike Trout or one of the best players in the game? Cause you don't want to have to get stuck with um, like one of your right-handed relievers to face a left-hander who hits him really well. So I don't think it's good. It's terrible. Like I don't, I don't want this in the game. Rob Manfred, he's just trying to mess with the game too much. He's trying to appeal to all the attention span-lacking kids who, as Dallas Braden put it, eat Tide Pods for entertainment. Um, Garrett, what do you t- what's your take on this? See, Jason, I know you're going to hate me, but I don't, I don't dislike this as much as you do. Um, I think the way that it works, you know, you're a batter, you're up on the plate. You gotta, if you're a pitcher, you have to pitch. You're not going to you know, get excuses. You're not going to be taken out of the game. I think it's better for the sport. It's better for you know, the balance of the way games go. It's better for people to be able to hit. It's better for pitchers to try and work themselves out of it. Um, I don't really, I don't mind that at all. Um, and I think the more people that watch the game, and I understand I love baseball. I love pitchers duels. I love, I don't mind one to nothing games. I, I love everything about baseball. Um, but I think the more the sport grows, I think runs help the sport grow, and I think the more the sport grows, it helps all of us, um, personally. Because it's it's tough. It honestly is tough to talk to people about baseball because it's it's hard to get into baseball. Um, it's really hard for for a lot of people, and I think runs offense help that. Um, I don't I don't mind it too much. I see where you're coming from, but it's also hurting the game of baseball because it's taking a little portion of what the game of baseball is away. That strategy, it, it kind of like it handcuffs the managers a little bit because they don't have that flexibility to use different guys in their bullpens to face certain different batters. I feel like in the NBA, you can put one guy matched up with another guy, and there's no rule that you have to keep it that way for like five minutes of the game. You can switch it anytime you want. It's all matchups. So when you limit a pitcher to having to face three batters, or when you restrain a pitcher to have to face three batters, it, I guess it's just messing with the game. Like That's not the way that it's supposed to be. You're supposed to have that ability to put in a lefty specialist. It's, it's taking players' jobs away. There's lefty specialists out there who are no longer effective because they come in in those situations just to face left-handed hitters, and then if they can't come out, say they're really bad against right-handers, and it makes them look worse and it puts them out of jobs. I mean, it is only three batters, though. You come in three batters isn't a the end of the world. A lot can happen in three batters. A lot can happen, but there's obviously a cap. It's not like you're sticking. You have to stick to one pitcher for an entire inning. I mean, it, you have to face three batters. Um, okay, say your starter's pitching. It's uh, the sixth inning, and his first three batters he faces, he loads the bases. 
So then a reliever comes in with the bases loaded and no outs. They have to face three batters. They give up a grand slam. They give up a walk. Then they give up another home run. That's six runs right there. That completely changes the game. After that grand slam, you don't want him to keep pitching. But you did choose to put him in. I mean, you chose that pitcher to go in there. I think you gotta you gotta look at the lineup. You gotta look at who's in your bullpen. Um, you still have the strategy of you know this guy pitched yesterday. This you know, I gotta warm this guy now. Um, I, it's an unfortunate situation, but I I don't think it changes too too much. And I understand if you don't like it. I just don't think it's as big of a deal as people think. So as I've been saying, the strategy in baseball is one of the best qualities of baseball. It makes what baseball it makes baseball what it is. And so when you take out that strategy, I think it makes the game a little less appealing. And the goal was to make the game more appealing. But when you take out that strategy, it, it ruins the game. As Jared Carabas put it, three batter minimum is the dumbest rule in professional sports. There's nothing like this in any other sport. Like I mentioned the basketball thing, um, football, hockey, there's no rule where you have to play a guy for a certain amount of time. Like, it's supposed to be the strategy in sports is matchups. I see what you mean. I definitely do. Um, I think it is easier as someone who loves baseball. It's, I mean, we're two guys that love baseball to see, um, you know, all the strategy. It's tougher for people that, you know, maybe watch once in a while. Um, but once you get into it, it really is something that you can look forward to. You can look forward to trying to figure out this guy's facing this guy. Um, I do love that about the game. It's just it's tough to get into. What I always say to those people who say baseball is boring or baseball is terrible is you have to understand the game to like it. And part of understanding is knowing that strategy, knowing what the situation is. When fans are watching for just like the surface level of the sport, they're not going to like it as much. I guess he's trying to make it so that um, it's shorter and fans are more interested in it. But there's only a certain degree of interest you can have if you don't understand actually what the situation is, what's happening, what's going through the manager's mind, what's going through the pitcher's mind. If the pitcher knows he's struggling and knows he can't come out for three batters, that's that's not great for the pitcher, and that it's kind of limiting the team. And like teams are supposed to do anything they can to win, and when you don't have that strategy, partly and, and one of the best ways to win is playing the matchups in any sport, playing the matchups. And when you're not able to play the matchups anymore because of this rule, it just it ruins the game. Would the mound visits uh, dropping mean more now that you have to have your guy in a struggle still stay pitching? That's a good point. I didn't think about that. When your pitcher has to pitch against three batters, I guess that could drive the mound visit number up because if he's on his third batter and he's struggling, like even if he's on a second batter, you want to go out there and calm him down so he can get to the next pitcher now that you can't just take him out if he's struggling. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I did I did poll my followers on this topic just to see what like the general consensus is and 46 actually supported it 46% and 54% said no. Um, the numbers on that 172 voted yes and 202 voted no on whether or not they like it. See, that's a pretty small turnout for you anyway cuz I think a lot of people don't it's like an eighth of my following. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't really know. It's tough to see. It's tough to predict a rule like this. Um, with such an interesting sport, such something like this can really change the game, and or it couldn't. You know, We don't really know, and I think a lot of people don't know either. Uh, so let's move on to this. Uh, let's take some listener questions. 
Garrett, you want to read them this time? Sure. Forced my brother to ask one. So. Who do you think could be a surprise in the bullpen this year from Masons 55? Plural? Multiple Masons? There are multiple Masons, yes. It is not possessive. Great. Um, surprise? I don't know if he's a surprise, but Colton Brewer? I mean, he wasn't on the team last year. He wasn't necessarily originally thought to be on the Major League team. So I guess he could be a surprise in the bullpen and actually be one of our better relievers. Um, he's had a good spring. Cora said stuff-wise he's up there with Matt Barnes, Ryan Brazier. So I think he could be a really good piece in the bullpen this season that not every Red Sox fan really expected. Um, so you obviously think, do you think they're going to go out and get a, uh, another reliever? Is that one of the questions or are you just asking me? Um, I was feeding off of Royal Rooter 17. Great name, by the way, buddy. That was his question. I think if they're going to go out and get a reliever, the only guy they're going to get is Craig Kimbrell. Um, there's not really anyone out there, which is part of the reason. Maybe if they did a trade, but we don't have anyone to trade. Our farm system is so, so bad. Part of the reason why we're losing so many spring training games. So they're not going to be able to get anyone good from trade. Um, and there's no one out there to sign other than Craig Kimbrell. So if we're going to get anyone, it's Craig Kimbrell. Is Stephen Wright done with the Red Sox? <laughs> Um, I, I've had a lot of people saying that we should just release him, but he's still good. Yeah, like, on a, on a warm day when the humidity is down and <laughs> I mean, the thing with him is he's had that trouble staying on the field in the past few years, but so with Steven, Wright, He, his knuckleball is very unique. There's no one else in the MLB who can throw a knuckleball. So that's a valuable asset, but he's up there in age. He hasn't been able to stay healthier on the field because of suspensions. Um, like you said, his knuckleball can be unpredictable. Um, he's His contract's up after 2020. So I don't see us releasing him, but I do see us taking him to the end of his contract and then not getting him back. Thank you, Red Sox Nation 2244 for that question. Sorry, forgot to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> forgot to knew it shout this. you out. Um, when do you predict to see Feldman in the big leagues? Ooh, I hope to see him opening day on, in the big leagues, but I doubt that he will. I'd say June probably. Start out either double A AA or triple A, and then be really good because he's really good. And then the Red Sox will realize that their bullpen is garbage, and they'll call him up to save it. That's how it will work. Fair enough. Because Thank he's better than anyone else that we would throw out there in the bullpen. It's true. Yeah. yeah. We need him in the big leagues. Uh, thank you, Joel f underscore Fowerbaugh. Fowerbaugh. Thank you. Great. Um, Tim, we are Tim TJ Nolan 319. We already talked about the two-minute limit. Um, What's the question? So how do you feel the about the two-minute limit on commercial breaks? I like it. We talked about it. Yes. That's why I said <laughs> we talked about it. Um Ian MC27, we're not going to give an opinion on Kareem Hunt. This is a baseball podcast, and yeah, we strictly keep it podcast. to. It's a baseball podcast. Either either podcast, way, it's Jason. not a football podcast. So, um, do you think JBJ will be a thirty thirty man from Stunad seventy five? So no, but thirty home runs possible. Thirty stolen bases possible. Maybe. No, no. Give me that question again. I didn't actually think about it. I actually do think he will. 
All right. Now that Jason has thought a little bit, Stunad75 <laughs> has a question. Will JBJ be a 30-30 man? Because they think so. I think there is a likely possibility that he'll be a 30-30 man. Um, like I, I've been saying in my past podcast episodes, he fixed his swing. He's going to be great. He's going to win MVP. He's going to have the 30-30. He might even go 40-40. Um, but in all seriousness, he has the fixed swing. He can hit the 30 homers. And he's got the speed to steal 30 bases. So in a perfect scenario, he plays all the games in the season. He can get 30-30. Yeah, I'm with you. We'll see how. Really? Uh, we'll see if he gets his mind right. I understand he had a tough year last year. Um, you know, some players can get down on themselves, um, but he's coming back better than ever. I think. Yeah. From J. Cohen 14. Considering how the Red Sox have been doing poorly at in spring training, I butchered that. I'm sorry, Jay. Want to start again? Yes. From Another question from j.cohen.14. Considering how poorly the Sox have been doing this spring training, what are your goals for this year? My goals would be to not play like we are in spring training. Um, 13 games is too many losses. Yes. For the entire season, yes. too many. Yes, for the whole entire season, we cannot lose 13 games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say lose no more then 12 games. Um, I'm not great at math, but whatever record that would be, I'd say that would be enough to win the division. And uh, I guess the main goal would be to win uh, the World Series, I'd say. I don't know. Do you think they'd want to do that? I think they'd want to do that. Yeah. I think they have a good enough squad. I think the Red Sox are motivated to win the World Series solely because I want them to. Mm. Um, yes. But I think that alone will carry them. Well, I think they're also motivated because they're going to finish last place right now in the Grapefruit League, and that's just an embarrassment. Like, they have to make up for that. Like, they might even go 162-0 and just to make up for that because they're so embarrassed. Um, on topic with baseball podcasts, a grapefruit is a horrible fruit in general. It tastes bad, and it's a bad name. So that just tells you that it doesn't matter. I think that's it. That's definitely not it. I saw way more questions than that. Well, give, give me that. So apparently Garrett couldn't find any more questions on here, even though there are questions, so I'm taking over. Um, this one <laughs> this one from Matt Sox 16 Do some polls. You see, you, you understand why I didn't, uh, didn't ask that question, Matt Sox. Okay. Uh, How do you not ask this question from HBomb623? How do we fix our bullpen on a budget? And the answer to that question is we don't. And we signed Craig Kimbrell for the money he wants because we need him. Yes, there's that. But on a budget, the answer is Durbin Feltman. Just call him up. Just put him in that closer spot and let him be amazing. And and pray. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So you missed this one too. Once again, talking about Durbin Feldman, how do you feel about the Dalton Furbush debut against the Tigers? Spring training doesn't matter, as we say, but the debut is awesome, and he's ready to be our closer. I skipped that question because I wasn't confident in pronouncing his name on recording. <laughs> Great. Um, any more questions here? Oh, we just got a new question come in here. Um, it's from Anonymous. It says, do you know where the best place to buy tickets to sports and concerts is? Yo, I heard something about this. Um, did, did you mention something about this before? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the place is. Oh, well, do you what's, know? The, what's the place? I have no idea. Hold on. Let, let, me, let me look here. 
Oh, oh. I think it's SeatGeek. SeatGeek? Do you know what that is? No, I don't know what that is, but I am going to a concert tomorrow. Um, then SeatGeek is the place for you. SeatGeek is the best ticket provider out there for all sports, concerts, shows, and more. They make buying tickets easy by grading every ticket price so you know you're getting the best deal, and they provide a view from your seat so you can pick the perfect seats to any event. Plus, you can get $20 off your first purchase with SeatGeek by using the promo code DUGOUT. Man, if I did that, That's I wouldn't D-U-G. be... O-U-T. Dugout. Man, if I did that, I wouldn't be stuck on the second floor of the House of Blues for the Dropkick Murphys tomorrow. Should have used SeatGeek with code Dugout that Jason just spelled for you. What's your favorite uh, Dropkick Murphy song? Um, Tessie, because it's about the Red Sox. Tessie is a terrible mascot. Yeah, but it's also the Royal Rooters Rally Cry and the name we always sung. Tessie Eckers April through October nights. So we do have Jemai Webster on the podcast this week, so uh, let's send it over to that. All right, we're here with Nesson sideline reporter Jemai Webster. Thanks for coming on, Jemai. Hey, no problem, guys. My first question has to be, what's it like being inside the Red Sox locker room during a champagne celebration? Oh, man, it's second to none. Uh, that's for sure. It's like no other. Obviously, the Red Sox are one of the premium uh, organizations. So anytime you can, uh, you know, be a part of that history, given the... Uh, history of the franchise and what they've accomplished and, and how they looked at by just everybody in the world, you know, you really have to, you know, count your lucky stars. It's humbling to just even be inside there experiencing something that you obviously didn't have any part to do with, but to be a fly on the wall is what I think it best describes what it feels like. Now, you don't get to wear the goggles like the players do, so do you get champagne in your eyes? Yeah, definitely, man. It's a uh, it's a struggle uh, to try and see because that stuff really burns. Because <laughs> uh, you know you never really have any time to otherwise, unless you're just a party animal to <laughs> to be showered in champagne any other time. So um, it's uh, it's it's not fun, that's for sure. Who's the uh, who's the biggest party animal in the Red Sox clubhouse? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, everybody seems like they love to have a good time. I don't know. That's what I got to think about, I think, a little bit. I think uh, after winning World Series, everybody kind of was reaching a level of a party because of the hard work that went into it. But uh, that's a tough one. Yeah, similar question. Do you have a favorite player on the Red Sox to talk to? Uh, I got a few, actually. I got a few favorites. I think Rick Porcello is always great to talk to. I enjoy, you know, just listening to him speak about the game and and just other things that are not even on topic with uh, baseball because, you know, a lot of times you you spend a lot of time when you travel with them and and you guys are together a little bit. So you get on other things outside of the game. And I think he's really introspective and – He's really thoughtful, and he thinks about the things that, you know, are going on outside of the game as well. But just the fact that he is a veteran, um, he's been around here for a long time. He was in the big leagues when he was 20 years old. You know, he was in some high-leverage situations even early on in his career. You think back to when he first came up with the Detroit Tigers, 
and they had American League Central tiebreaking game, and he got the start there. So uh, from that point to where he is now, being a guy who pitched, what was it, Game 3 of the World Series, uh, he's got a lot of stories. And uh, he's looked at as a guy who's well-respected in the clubhouse. So I always find him interesting to pick his brain and just talk about all kinds of things. Also, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. is really cool. You know, being a young father himself, uh, even more so than myself. I just had a, a daughter a couple of years ago. So uh, he has a daughter who's a little older than mine. But it's interesting to get his perspective on those kind of things and talk outside of baseball. And then, you know, you run into these players' families sometimes, too. So it's hilarious because his dad's a character. So it seems like, you know, he got a lot of his personality from him, too. So. He's an interesting guy to talk to. Uh, Mookie Betts as well. Very fun character. Interesting to talk to about other things outside of the game, you know, like basketball, because you're a multi-sport athlete, obviously. He's got a background in bowling, which is like the weirdest trifecta that you probably have ever heard of a three-sport athlete <laughs> when it comes to guys who play multiple sports, right? So he's interesting, too, as a guy who was, you know, had a fast track to the big leagues and was the best player on the planet last season. So those are probably my top three right there. But uh, I think this is a great group actually, and everybody's interesting. And, you know, I find that everybody has a, a funny story to tell. And a lot of times, you know, you just got to discover it a little bit. So it's uh it's interesting to talk to the whole group, all 25 guys, really. But those are some of the three that, that really stand out. Before you worked at Nesson, you were covering sports in Denver. So how much of a difference have you noticed in the Boston fan bases uh, versus in Denver? Oh, man, it's night and day. It's, uh, it's a major difference. You know, Boston, essentially, you know, covering sports in Denver is still a big deal. And, you know, they got a growing fan base in, in all their sports, and they've had good teams. Obviously, the Broncos won the World's, uh, excuse me, the uh, Super Bowl in back-to-back years, so they had the championship history. The Colorado Avalanche, also uh, NHL-winning franchise, they took the Stanley Cup in the early 2000s. And then you have the Colorado Rockies, you know, who lost to the World Series to the Red Sox uh, a couple years back. But when you go to Boston, man, it's just, it's just different. It's a different feel, you know, and uh, you recognize it right away. It's like no other sports town in the country. So it's also a blessing to be able to be a part of the fabric of the sports that makes Boston what what special sports town it is. So it's a significant difference. Um, and it just feels like uh, I've had quite the, you know, lucky journey to be able to get where I have been. And, um, you know, I'm blessed to have the opportunity to be covering sports in this town. Now, when you prepare yourself to go on TV, is there anything you have to walk yourself through with? Do you have to uh, mentally prepare yourself to put yourself out in front of all those people? Uh, I used to. That's not something I really worry about anymore as much. I think when you, you know, make the choice to be like a person who wants to work in television, a lot of times you already kind of have like a extroverted personality so um it's a lot easier for you to be put in these situations but obviously as you 
you know, grow in your television career and you move up from, because I, I started in a small market, you know, College Station, Texas, where, you know, there may have been 100 people watching what I was doing at, at any particular time, but, you know, you come to Boston, you're on a Red Sox game, Red Sox Yankees or something like that, and there's a billion people who are watching the games and, you know, you go on for 10 seconds and then your phone starts blowing up because there's just a lot more eyes on you and things that you do or say comes under scrutiny. But um, I don't really, you know, worry about, you know, oh, man, I'm like I'm on TV or I'm freaking out or anything like that. I just try to focus on the job that I have to do and, and do it to the best of my ability, I guess. Um, so it served me well. And, you know, that's one thing that never really freaked me out as much. Because at the end of the day, you know, whether you're in the studio or out in the field, it's like, you know, any athlete who kind of gets into his own, you just kind of fall into what you're doing and, and that becomes the focus. So that's kind of how I approach it. And uh, I guess that's a good trait to have because otherwise I'd be, you know, pissing my pants <laughs> if that was the case. Do you have any kind of superstitions before you go on TV? Uh... No, not really. But when I was in Texas and I was anchoring, I used to always like kick the door to the studio literally as hard as I could. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the studio crew guys used to get annoyed with it. So I kind of stopped. But for some reason, that kind of just got me amped up. Like like anybody coming into an arena or any player about to take the field, it just felt like that was the thing that I did. So I used to kick it and then I used to be like, all right, I'm ready to go now. And uh, that's, like, the only thing that I used to do. And then I just stopped doing it as much. I guess I was kind of immature, you know, as well. But uh, it was always something that got me going. And, you know, when I didn't need it anymore, when they, they were upset, I stopped doing it. But, um, yeah, that was one thing that I can recall that I get superstitious. But other than that, I don't really have any. So the one question I want to know is, um, on the sideline, have you ever hit, been hit by a stray foul ball? Oh, man. I come real close, actually. I remember one time in Anaheim, we were on the road, and we were uh, with the Sox, and they were playing the Angels. And the way it's set up uh, at Angel Stadium, where the sideline reporter is, like, you are, like, legit adjacent to, like, the batter's box. So, true story, Mike Trout was batting, and this was two years ago. So, like, I'm, like, 10 feet away from him. And I really wasn't paying attention because I was, like, probably getting ready to do a report or something or somebody was talking to me. I was with my cameraman, Pat Gamir. And there's video of this, too, so you can go find it. Look up PGameHD on, on Instagram. <laughs> but I was with my cameraman, Pat Gamir, and we were sitting in the camera well, and the camera's right next to me. All of a sudden, you hear this crack, this crack of the bat. And I look up. And, like, I swear, the fastball was like a missile coming straight from my head, it seemed like. But it continued to, like, it was like a Craig Kimbrell fastball, so it continued to elevate. It smashed off his camera, and it hit the viewfinder, which was like, I was sitting down, so it had to be, like, I don't know, three feet away from my head. And um, it hit the camera, and the piece fell off. And, uh, you know, he didn't get hit, but, like, the ricochet caught me, like, in the back a little bit, but it was still, like, it had to be, like, 100 miles per hour coming at me. It was just, like, one of those things that freaked me out, kind of startled me a little bit. 
But uh, luckily, I didn't get hit. It just knocked off the camera equipment, and uh, and then like Mike looked over at us, and he was like, you know, lifting his hands, like you know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those things that it just happened so quick, and uh, we had fun with it on the broadcast too. But um, yeah, that was one time I got close, and then another time at Finley, um, I don't even remember who hit the ball, but. Last year, they made this new addition in the camera wheel where the sideline reporters are, which is next to the uh, the team dugout or whatever. They made this addition where they added the net. You know, people start getting hit and, like, it was a liability. So they extended the net way down right field. So it was a new thing. So they even covered up our area. And, like, the photographers, the still photographers really hate it. So they just pull up the netting because, you know, it gets in the way of their shot, right? Unless they're, like, zooming in completely or they're trying to be artistic and get something cool. But... They rolled up the thing, so we were exposed. And, and mind you, last season they also made an addition where they, they renovated that area and they dug it deeper. So it's not as shallow, so you can kind of sit down and be hidden by the uh, – so basically just imagine being on the first baseline and looking directly out. So your view is literally the dirt if you're sitting down in a seat over there. So you're looking at the dirt, so your head is kind of exposed, but it's not really. So they had rolled it up this one game, and it was just like a screamer got hit. And you only got to really worry when there's a left-handed batter in the box because you're to the right. So that's usually the time, you know, you got to be heads up. So it was like a screamer sent to the dugout or sent that direction. But there was like – it must have been a national TV game because there was a camera to my left, camera to my right, and like big, huge TV cameras. So I was kind of blocked by it. So I felt like I was pretty safe in a good spot. But this thing came in. And the cameraman was like, look out, duck down. And I just, I wasn't even paying attention, as always, which is probably a bad, bad uh, trend here, as you notice. I started paying attention in there, but it smacked his camera, and then it, it squeezed through, like, the hole, and it, it seemed like it was just, like, going, like, pinball, trying to get everybody. But the ball kind of rattled, lost his speed. That's another time it came really close, but it didn't get me. So I hope, you know, this is not the season that I get nailed. <laughs> Now, if you see a ball coming right at your head, do you think you're capable of catching it one-handed Odell style and saving yourself? It depends. If it's like a, <laughs> a softly hit ground ball, I might give it a shot. <clears throat> there was a time this last season, too, where I tried, and it just was coming too fast. So I, like, I tried to grab it. Again, it was coming too fast. If I had a glove, I would have certainly got it in. I let it go, and it, 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 like, hit into the dugout again. And it was also, it, like, hit ground before, so it was, like, bouncing towards me. And I just didn't have the heart to do it, man. And I looked next to my left, and it's Joe Kelly in the dugout making fun of me. Like, dude, come on. Are you kidding me? You got to grab that with your hand. And uh, he never let me live it down. Called me a wuss and all that stuff. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I thought I'd grab it, but I've had the opportunity to once, and I, and I didn't go for it. <laughs> so did you play baseball as a kid? Yeah, I played t-ball as a kid, and I was like a multi-sport athlete coming up, too, so I played t-ball, and like, I have an older brother, and he was much better at baseball than I was, like, he was on the all-star teams and stuff, so I wanted to play it because he played it, so my parents signed me up, and I played t-ball, and I was really good, just crushing home runs, had the power off the tee, and I was just killing it, so the next few years... I had to go up to, you know, like fast pitch where they're actually kids throwing the ball. You know, kids are throwing like 60 miles an hour. It's like, I don't know, 10 years old or whatever. And, dude, I could not hit to save my life. So I was like, baseball is no fun. <laughs> you know, so I didn't really have much time to, like, 
work at it because I'd just been over it. You know, it was such a frustrating game for me. And I was like, I'm done with this. And proceeded to play basketball and football, and I ran track, and I kept on with those sports as I got older. But I almost wish, like, my dad was a little more, you know, forcible and making me not quit that easily. But he he certainly didn't really care. He just wanted me to play sports, and my dad's a track coach. So naturally, as long as I was doing track, he was all good with it. But, uh, yeah, that, that was the level I got up to just that first year outside of T-ball, and I was dying. What would you say was the highlight of your youth sports career? Highlight of my youth sports career? Uh, probably high school basketball. Um, I was, uh, so I'm from Southern California, so, you know, my high school is just outside of Los Angeles, like about 20 minutes north. Um, so it was the uh, Valley Mission League, and, you know, we played against guys from all over, but getting to play basketball against you know, guys who went on to have long NBA careers, the NBA champions was probably the highlight. Um, played against guys like Nick Young, who had a long career at the Lakers. And, you know, uh, he went to rival high school, Cleveland High School for mine. Um, Steve Smith, who uh, played with the Giants, went to USC. He was wide receiver for them. Also, my graduating class played against him and George Farmer, who went on to play for the Lakers and the Brooklyn Nets and overseas. Also against him um, and Trevor Ariza as well, who's still playing in the NBA, which is kind of crazy. So uh, having to play against some of those guys, um, you know, in basketball, summer leagues and, you know, regular season, probably uh, the highlight of my athletic career. Because once I got to college, I was just strictly focused on athletics. I probably could have walked on uh, to play college ball, but I just was like thinking, you know, this wasn't going to be something that I probably would pursue as a professional career. At that point, I didn't, I didn't think that was in the cards for me. Um, so definitely my high school years um, playing basketball against some of those guys, and then also, you know, running track and get some people who became Olympians at later time um, was pretty cool, too, because, you know, California is another one of those states where it's highly competitive and you have a lot of people who come out uh, who become professional athletes and such. So uh, that wasn't bad. Who is your childhood sports idol growing up? Who did you look up oh, to? Oh, man, it was a couple guys, actually. First off, it started MJ, Michael Jordan. I love that guy so much. Still to this day, I mean, he's probably the only athlete that if I ever met in person, I'd be starstruck uh, by. He was the greatest to ever do it in basketball. Still is to this day. There's no debate as guys me. <laughs> so I love Michael Jordan, uh, probably my hoops idol. And then once he retired, uh, Allen Iverson was my guy. Um, I guess, I, I, you know, if I met him, I'd probably be a little starstruck too because I used to buy it just like him and stuff he kind of changed the culture of basketball so I liked him very much uh if I had to pick a baseball guy it'd be Griffey you know King Griffey Jr. he was flashy you know he was fast and I just imagine that if I would have kept up with baseball my game would have probably been trying to emulate his so those are my two sports probably the stars that you know I idolized growing up guys I wanted to be like um certainly look up to. 
So going off of that, who was the athlete that you interviewed as a reporter that you got the most starstruck by? Like, wow, I'm really interviewing this guy right now. Oh, man, that's an easy one. I never forget it. Kobe Bryant. I, uh, I was interning for the CBS station in Los Angeles. And um, one of my mentors, and to this day, you know, he's still one of my mentors, guy by the name of John Ireland, who's now the Lakers play-by-play guy on the radio. He was the sideline reporter at the, or the court center. The, yeah, the sideline reporter at the time uh, with the Lakers. And he was, I don't know why, what he was doing. He was just busy doing something else. And I had gone to the game with him as the intern that day. So we were covering the game and this was the prime of Kobe's career. So this was like 2006, seven, sometime around there. And they were like, hey, Shemai, you got to go in the locker room. You got to get sound for us, post-game sound. He had to do like a live shot for uh, the late news, you know, and they were going to feed the sound. I was going to tell him what he asked. So I'm with the cameraman. His name is Glenn. And he's like, all right, you got to get in the spot right in front of his locker. He's going to talk. You know, here's the mic. Um, We're just going to wait for him to see what he says. So like Kobe was getting dressed and um, he was just, you know, waiting for him. If you ever see, you know, from inside an NBA locker room. So his, his locker's right there and here I am, like, you know, he's not, he wasn't too much older than me at that point. Cause you know, he, he came into the NBA when he was 18. So, I mean, he's like five years older than me at this point, five, six years or something like that. So, you know, I'm this college senior and, uh, I'm in Lakers locker room, but I'm just like, dude, this is Kobe. And there's all these senior reporters around me, all these people who have been in television for 20 plus years or whatever, just veterans because, you know, in a market like Los Angeles, these people know what they're doing. So here I am still in college. And uh, he gets dressed, puts on a shirt, and at this point, his back is to us. So he finally turns around. He's like, all right, what you guys got? And I'm just like, nobody's saying anything. So I'm like, shoot, man. I guess I got to ask the questions because we need the sound. So I come up with these two quick questions. I don't know. I say, Kobe, you know, you guys did whatever. I don't know the question that I asked, but I hit him with the first question. And he just pauses for a moment. He looks at me like, who the hell is this kid, you know? <laughs> and he's looking around at the other reporters, and then he answers the question, and I have a follow-up to that. So I asked the first two questions in the scrum. And, I, you know, I'm just, like, freaking out the fact that, you know, I'm doing this, and then everybody's kind of looking at me. And then we proceed with the rest of the interview and, you know, finish up with the post-game. And um, I could tell just by looking at him, he's like, you know, this kid, this guy, you know, coming in here, asking, you know, first few questions with this, this this crew or whatever. But after I did that, the cameraman was like, dude, that was a good job, man. You asked the first time. I was like, yeah, well, nobody was saying anything. So I just went ahead. I was like, all right, let me interview him. So that's probably the guy I was kind of starstruck by, but I had a job to do and, you know, I came through with it. So I knew uh, something had to be done, but I I think I got that tape probably sitting around somewhere in my files that I have. I got to find it. Maybe uh, put it out on, on Instagram or Twitter and put it for people or something. But uh, that was probably that one time I was like, oh, man, I was in over my head. But you know what they say, uh, fake it till you make it. So that's what I try to do. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So bringing it back to the Red Sox, um, how do you prepare on the sidelines when, say, like Mookie Betts hits a walk-off homer and you know that you have to interview him in a few seconds? Oh, man, those things are uh... – like you said, those things, you know, kind of happen simultaneously. So it's really, you just kind of live in the moment. There's really no preparation. You know, you kind of have an idea because as a sideline reporter, just 
writing down moments or or keeping a good idea of what's being done in the game. So you kind of have a handle of what you may ask or who's standing out. Uh, so you try to follow along with that, and, you know, what the broadcast crew is saying, like guys like Dave O'Brien or Jerry Remy or whether it's Eck in the booth, the kind of things that they're discussing during the game or focusing on. And that's what I try to key on, really, the storylines that are being created. So in a walk-off situation, you know, and that's also live inside the entire ballpark. So literally everybody within, you know, a shouting distance or, or who's sitting in the ballpark and can hear it even on the street. They play that stuff. So those moments are, are usually always, you know, you got to act fast, think about what's going on. So in a situation like that, you know, I usually, because I've been in that once or twice or a few times, you know, I'm always focusing on the at-bat, you know, seeing what the guys are doing. And, and that's really the interesting part of it because you always wonder, you know, what type of pitch they were looking for or what were they – thinking during that moment because those are the things that you want to know you want to get some insight on how they were processing the situation that they're in that's usually my first question you know who were you looking for in that at bat or is it, it was a six seven pitch at bat you know how were you how were you able to battle off or you know things along that that nature so that's usually my first question or so and then if other things come up in the game that i noticed i'll add that and um usually whoever else was significant as a as a piece of the victory or, or, you know, helping them out, I'll go to that. But usually those walk-off interviews are about three, four questions. So you kind of go into it with a little bit of a plan, but walk-offs are usually like those are the wild cards, you know. Those are the ones where you just – you got to do what comes to mind, what feels right. So uh, those are difficult situations, but they're also, you know, those situations where – you know, you get your blood pumping and um, you kind of feel alive during those moments. Yeah, and then what's going through your mind when you see that big jug of Gatorade coming out of the dugout? Oh, man. that uh, These days, I, I've been getting, I got a lot more wise thanks to <laughs> going to the, the school of Tom Karen, who, uh, you know, told me you always have to have the situational awareness to not be hit with the Gatorade bath. But early on in my, you know, coverage of the Red Sox, I would not be paying attention to anything else going on around me outside of that. So I know now that during a walk-off, it's likely that there's going to be some liquid being poured somewhere. Uh, so I'm, I'm more, you know, inclined to look out for it. But uh, it's one of those things where the guys have fun with it. And, and, you know, later on or towards the last few seasons or this last season, really, you know, they definitely give me a heads up. And I'm always facing towards the dugout. So there was times last year even where they got Andrew Benintendi after a game. And then I see Mookie coming and he's like, hey, you better watch out. And, you know, I just hop out of the way. But uh, they usually give me a heads up these days. So that's nice. But uh, you always got to be aware of that during those celebrations. Last question I want to ask. Um, we see you all the time on TV. But what's one thing that not every fan would know about you? Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. One of those introspective questions. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, one thing people know about me. Huh. It'd probably be, you know, that I'm, I'm a fan just like everybody else. You know, I enjoy the game. I like to have fun, too. I think uh, a lot of times what we do is, is a lot more serious, more buttoned up. But I'm such a character, you know. I'm a jokester. I enjoy bringing the fun aspect to the game. So I, I think a lot of times I'm not always able to showcase that. But, you know, I think 
I think people would find me pretty funny sometimes if they had an opportunity to uh, to come and talk to me or, or spend some time, I think. Uh, they'd be pleasantly surprised by that. Some people might be able to glean that from watching me on TV, but uh, I think it's certainly something that uh, uh, is a huge part of who I am and uh, you know what I try to do when it comes to making TV watchable, to just always have fun with it. So I think that'd probably be it. I don't know. Maybe I have to get back to you with something else, but that's the thing that comes to mind, I guess, after a little bit of thought. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's good. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Jemai. We really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, man. No problem, man. I know we tried to do this for a while, but uh, I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yeah, glad we got it done. All right. Take care, guys. There you have it, Jemai Webster. Big thanks to him for coming on the podcast. Great interview. Highly entertaining. Very fun to talk to. Really good guy. Yeah, some great stories he had there. Um, yeah, that's our podcast for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, follow me on Instagram at RedSox underscore dugout. And follow me at don't, Garrett Jacobsmeyer. And I'll see you at the Dropkick Murphys tomorrow in the House of Blues Boston. Yeah. Just under two weeks until opening day. Uh, any kind of like ending line. Thanks for letting us knock your socks off. We're out. <laughs> our our uh, outro song does not have drums. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> Thank you for letting us knock your socks off. We'll catch you next week on the In the Dugout podcast. <laughs>